0: and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Welcome to the MCAT Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I'm joined by one of the Blueprint Live Online members. This week, we are jumping into BioBiochem Passage One from Blueprint MCAT Diagnostic that you get for free over at BlueprintMCAT.com. Why would you pass up an opportunity to get free MCAT resources? Again, BlueprintMCAT.com, get that diagnostic, a free full length, as well as their amazing study planner tool, flashcards, and all of the other amazing things they continue to add over at BlueprintMCAT. Let's go and jump into our BioBioChem passage today. Evan, back for some more MCAT podcasts. How you doing, my friend?
1: Doing well. Ready to ready to explore
0: some bio biochem bio biochem. Don't 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 say those forbidden words in this this household. Um, bio biochem. So we finished cars in a normal full length kind of testing environment, real test day environment. Bio biochem comes after lunch. What is what are your thoughts for lunch breaks for students?
1: Lunch breaks, yeah. Um, I think obviously. I think you should eat something. I think that a big thing for lunch break, it's the longest break. You get 30 minutes. It can be good or bad. It can be very like restful and allow you to come back in the bio, bio section with a lot of energy, kind of a second win. But it could also be tempting to kind of overthink and go back and think, oh, if I had another five minutes, I could have gone back and done this or that or whatever. That's ultimately not going to be helpful. So we want to make sure that we're always forward thinking, right? Maybe, maybe you missed a question here or there that you wish you could have had back. That's okay. Make up for it in the next half of the, of the test. But with lunch itself, um, I be really conservative with what you're eating. Eat something you've, eaten, you, you've had several times before. Don't try out some new recipe on the day of the test and risk some, uh, some GI
0: problems. Montezuma's revenge coming for you. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> be, be, be conservative with that. I, I think for testing, I had a PB&J yep. and a granola bar. Yeah. So, yeah, think think something like that, maybe
0: can't go wrong unless you're allergic to peanuts. Do not have to yes. Um, Awesome. All right. So we come back from lunch. You got to go do the whole check in process. How do you how do you deal with stress of going through that whole process to get back into the, the testing center and go back to your seat?
1: Um, I tried to get uh, start checking in early. You, the worst thing that you can do for your stress levels going into there is to take an extra long lunch and then try to, you know, shuffle through the line of people back in a testing center and mm. and cost yourself, even if it's just thirty seconds or a minute. That honestly is probably not going to have a big difference on your score, but that's going to make you super stressed mm. walking in there knowing you've already lost a little bit of time. So don't risk it. It's okay to take a slightly shorter lunch, and then maybe you have a couple of minutes left in your lunch break where you're just sitting at the desk. You know where it's quiet. There's no one else rustling or nervously chatting, and you can kind of just have a second to yourself. That's kind of what I tried to do: was a little bit of, a few seconds of solace there before I before I went back into the the storm.
0: Yeah, got it. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our passage again. This is Bio Biochem Passage One from the Blueprint MCAT Diagnostic Exam, which everyone gets for free over at BlueprintMCAT.com. So. Let's uh, let's let's ride this wave into into the fun. Um, so we we learned uh, last week's episode covering kind of that passage five of cars, reading, stopping, highlighting. Do you do any sort of difference in reading passages
1: for the science sections versus cars? Somewhat, a little bit different. The I would say the cadence is pretty similar, or I like to kind of take stuff of stuff um, paragraph by paragraph, but the focus of my highlighting is a little bit different. Because, like we talked about in cars, there's absolutely no outside knowledge that's tested on. In the science sections and in biobiochem, there's lots of outside science knowledge that can be tested in. So sometimes I like to change my highlighting a little bit. So I'm still trying to incorporate the key ideas. And you know, if there's an experimental style passage, I like to kind of try to include the results and the hypothesis and stuff like that, that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. But I also sometimes try to highlight any things that I know are MCAT testable or make, make note of them since you know they're not gonna ask me a question about something that's not required knowledge, but if they draw a connection between this new passage information and amino acid composition or this, this um, passage information, enzyme kinetics, that is possible for them to test on. So it's really good to kind of focus in on that type of stuff yeah. like for these science passages.
0: Okay. All right, let's go ahead and jump in.
1: All right. Um, kind of, we'll just do this kind of the same way, I guess. So kind of just start reading paragraph by paragraph. I'll toss you some questions, Ryan, kind of see what you're thinking here. Okay. Paragraph one. Cataract generation triggered by Lens injury is considered to be driven by the action of the proliferation and epithelial mesenchymal transition of Lens epithelial cells as a complication of injury and inflammation. The epithelium quickly expands, creating a hundredfold increase in the number of cells. In response to trauma, irritation, or surgery, cytokines and growth factors increase in the aqueous humor and stimulate LECs proliferate and undergo emt this response is significantly diminished in organisms where emt is inhibited by the inactivation of transforming growth factor beta tgf beta especially tgf beta 2 the major isoform in the aqueous humor there's a lot of jargon (laughs) just a little bit just a little bit and a lot of it is honestly i would say more into the weeds than the MCAT is usually going to be worried about asking us about. We don't need to have a deep anatomical or physiological understanding of what Lin's epithelial cells do. Mm-hmm. Presumably, I don't know, you probably learned that in medical school, Ryan. You probably, maybe eight aeons ago, saw this. Right? <laughs> but I'm not five that old. Ago. Come on. You know, you know, you know, five, five years ago when you were back <laughs> in medical school.
0: Yes, yes. Just five. five. Just five.
1: <laughs> But there's some stuff here that is probably test. I don't know. Is there any stuff here, uh, Ryan, that you see that either seems like it's hitting on stuff that might be testable? That's some of that more foundational level of biology, or any stuff that just is um, stands out to you as being important because it's kind of summarizing everything in this first paragraph.
0: Yeah, I mean the the last sentence kind of summarizes a, a big part of it. The beginning part is is the um, what happens right what's what's causing this kind of this cataract generation and the definition of that of what's going on here and then the big far, the the big part here that i think we focus on is um, is is this part here that focuses in on hey there's this inactivation of this uh, tgf beta and specifically beta 2 that that's going to help
1: yeah, exactly. I like that a lot. I, I love how you point out in that first sentence, we're getting kind of a description. They're saying there's this thing that happens, cataract generation, and we know that uh, we, we are suspecting what's causing it, right? Because they're telling us this is driven by the action of dot, dot, dot. That type of language is giving us a causal relationship. It seems like the cause is this proliferation and EMT of the lens epithelial cells. And the cataract generation is the effect of that cause. So, that's something they like to ask us about, or potentially something that will be introduced uh, that they're trying to study, maybe as part of a um, you know, cause and effect relationship and experiment. Great thing yeah. to keep in mind, though. Perfect. Moving on to our next paragraph. During the process of EMT, LECs undergo cytoskeletal rearrangement with the addition of a large amount of extracellular matrix proteins, such as collagen and fibronectin. In anterior cataracts, the proliferation and EMT of LECs in situ leads to the formation of opaque plaques just beneath the lens anterior capsule. This one's got a lot more jargon here, but is there any stuff here, Ryan, that you see reminds you of stuff from your uh, intro to bio class or just that foundational stuff that does seem infestible here?
0: Um extracellular extracellular matrix proteins um i think is a big one here um and then maybe this in situ formation of plaques i don't know
1: yeah i mean honestly yeah i think that You know, probably it's a good idea to be a little bit familiar with this idea of extracellular matrix and, you know, the the cytoskeleton. Those are good things to have at least a a foundational level understanding of, not necessarily a super deep understanding. And then I really like that second highlight you made. I don't necessarily think that we need to know what an opaque plaque is. But I like that it's telling us this leads to something else. So it's giving us another one of those cause and effect relationships, which can be really important to, to keep track of here. Yeah. hi. Right. Paragraph three now. Paragraph three. The production of TGF-beta is catalyzed by histone deacetylase 1, or HDAC1. HDAC1 removes acetyl groups from N-acetyl lysine groups on histone. Once synthesized, TGF-beta is secreted by activated monocytes in aqueous humor. Since monocytes mediate almost 80% of the local TGF-beta, scientists tested the theory that TGF-beta is responsible for the monocyte's impact on LEC production. The number of LECs expressing MIB1, a nuclear protein, was utilized as a measure of LEC proliferation and expected EMT. That's dense. That's dense. There's like an unbelievable amount of alphabet soup in there. But (laughs) there's a couple things that we can maybe like keep track of in here. I think going back to those basic things, can we find any cause and effect relationships or any hypotheses that they're making here? Mm-hmm. Right? do you see any stuff like that? Any any language that's indicating to us what they think is happening?
0: Yeah, so this monocytes mediates uh, the local TGF beta uh, responsible for impact on LEC production um, and then this MIB uh, Mib one as a a measure of LEC proliferation and blah blah blah.
1: I like all that stuff here. So honestly, that that middle sentence there that you pulled out, I like a lot because that honestly sounds to me quite a bit like a hypothesis. It's like yeah. ah, we know something. There are these monocytes that do you know a lot of the that mediate a lot of this local TGF beta in light of that, the scientists are testing some theory, that sounds like the beginning of an experiment. And that's good to keep in mind because it's telling us what are we interested in. It's honestly giving us kind of a preview to the variables that are probably going to be used in whatever experiment and testing we're doing would be a good kind of point there. Then we get our experiments here. So just a label here says experiment one, and then I'll give us a little bit of our, our description here. So experiment one. After simulated injury, monocyte slash LEC cultures were treated with an antibody that lyses all but a negligible fraction of available monocytes. A division of these cultures was also treated with a TGF beta agonist. A second set of cell cultures was treated with antagonists of epithelial TGF beta receptors, TGFBR1 and TGFBR2, as shown in Table One. Okay. a little bit of a description and i really like this description because it's telling us um, in words what we're seeing in the table and i think for lots of students kind of dissecting these tables these figures can be really difficult here i don't know that was kind of for me one of the the biggest things that i had to get over the hump with in the bio -bio biochem passage how do you feel Brian, you you love tables. Do You have a, a long story relationship with tables and figures and stuff. Are you kind of? <laughs> uh,
0: I I think it highly highly depends on on what's in there. Uh, yeah. I I'm not for or against. Um, I just yeah. I just hope I understand it.
1: Yep. Uh, that's 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 a good. <laughs> um, I will kind of preface this with, in my opinion, when we're going through a science passage, you can get. Sometimes passages that have you know two, three, four different tables or figures. Mm. And sometimes you won't get any questions about some of the tables or figures. For that reason, I usually only on my first pass through the passage, maybe spend five or ten seconds glancing at each table or figure. So that way I'm not, you know, dedicating time to a figure that might ultimately not get me any extra points. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. but if it gets referenced or if I know I need to use it to understand the results, then maybe we can dig into a little more. So looking here at table one and looking at what they told us from this little preamble or this description of table one, it seems like we're kind of trying to test here what's happening when we have either the antibody present, that's an anti-monocyte antibody when it's present or it's not present. And then we're also looking to see what happens when we have the agonist present, or when we have the antagonist present or absent. So we're kind of saying what's happening when we have these things or don't have these things. And there's four different things that we're interested in and in kind of saying, is it here, is it not here? And that's kind of the, the mix of different results that we're reading.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Am I super concerned with the results right now? Probably not because I know, you know, based on just that 10 second glance over this table, I have a good enough understanding of what's going on what's being tested that I can identify if this is being asked about in a question and then know I can come back to it to overanalyze it. Okay. So we'll we'll maybe come back and worry about it later, depending on whether or not we see a question. But in the meantime,
0: (laughs) I pray we can ignore it.
1: That's what I say too. Whenever I see a really difficult like table with all, uh, all these things going on, all these, you know, little side led and stuff like, please don't let there be a question. Yeah, we'll see. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Um, But regardless, we don't want to spend too much time digging into it until we know we have to. All right. Then we're introduced to experiment two. In an effort to determine whether MIB1 is associated with LEC regulation, LEC density was assessed during the course of epithelial growth in wild type and MIB1 null cell cultures as shown in figure one. Okay, so Ryan, based on that description here and based on what we can see as the figure, which our uh, the audio listeners might not be able to see, but kind of tell me, what what does it seem like the variables are here? I think that's a good thing to glance at in our 10-second our lookover of this graph. What's What are we changing? What's the independent variable? What are we changing as the researchers? Uh,
0: the MIB1 association here
1: yes yeah whether it's a wild type or whether it's a, a null mib whether they don't have any of this mib1 mm-hmm. awesome then what are we measuring right what is the change we expect to see or that we're measuring to see if there's a change as a result of that independent variable manipulate?
0: we're looking at the the lec density
1: perfect great i think that is a great understand. honestly that's like Maybe even more than I would even expect us to get on that first pass-through. That is really, really good identifying those, um, those variables because that's giving us a very good scope of what's going on here. Okay. Dense, dense, dense passage with lots <laughs> of uh, lots of like alphabet soup, really. That's what I always call. It whenever I see anytime there's you know genes or, or proteins and stuff like that, the naming conventions are a headache. So we want to be really careful
0: making sure we're picking the right ones. Yeah. Oh, All right. Now um, uh, I'm worried. Um, Question one. The catalyst for TGF beta production most likely plays a direct role in A, gene silencing, B, ribosomal inactivation, C, transfer of an acetyl group from acetyl-CoA, or D, gene activation. <sighs> the catalyst for TGF production. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so this TGF production, or we were first introduced to TGF here in this first paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um. I have no idea. Oh, wait. So, here. Production of TGG, TGF beta is catalyzed by histone deacetylase 1. HDAC1 removes acetyl group from N acetyl lysine groups on histone. And then TGF is secreted by activated monocytes in the aqueous tumor. All right. So, basically, what is this? Um, histone deacetylase 1. So, transfer of acetyl group from acetyl-CoA. So, deacetylase, acetyl group. Deacetylase, acetyl group. I'm going to go with C and move on. <laughs> That's a very tempting answer. <laughs> That's because I have no other idea.
1: Yeah. So, this is, you identified, I liked everything up to that point. You, you read the question. You said, okay, I need to figure out what is the catalyst for TGF beta production. You went through, you scanned it, you found it. It's this HDAC1, this histone of 1. And all they tell us about it, point one, it, it helps with the catalysis of the production of TGF-beta. And the second thing they tell us is that it's doing some of these chemical modifications to histones. So Ryan, do you remember what a histone is or what a histone does?
0: Uh, has to do with genes.
1: It does. Yes, yeah, so histones are these, these protein complexes. Uh, if you think about it, the way that the DNA is wrapped up when it's in con- its condensed form and its chromosomes, mm-hmm. it's like these beads. And then around that bead, it's like the DNA is spun around it tightly to make it really condense and easily packaged in you know, a small place inside the nucleus. So what the histones are really important for is this DNA package. And... There are modifications on these histones that we should be familiar with for the MCAT. This is where um, a little bit of that outside knowledge does come into play here. And really the only outside knowledge we need to know here is that histones have to do with DNA and like whether DNA gets turned on and off based on whether the DNA is attracted to the histone or repelled from the histone. Because if it's closely and it's attached to the histone, right, it's stuck and it can't move and it can't get uh, transcribed. Whereas if it's repelled from the histone and there's some separation, we have room to get the transcription machinery there. So here, what happens when we are deacetylating a lysine group? So lysine is one of our amino acids that we want to be familiar with. When it is acetylated, lysine is neutrally charged. It doesn't have any charge at all. When we deacetylate lysine, it gets a positive charge. DNA is negatively charged always. That's just what DNA is. Mm. So the negatively charged DNA, once that lysine gets deacetylated, they come together, right? It's positive and negative. Opposites attract, and they get stuck together. So after we deacetylate that lysine group, we're causing this DNA, this gene, to get stuck to the histone, which makes it inaccessible to our um, transcription machinery, to our RNA polymerase that ends up causing this gene silencing, right? Because if the, the RNA polymerase can't get there to that gene anymore, we're gonna have no way to transcribe it and therefore um, it's gonna turn off transcription. So kind of a takeaway here that I get here for Ryan, you did an absolutely perfect job on the passage part of it, right? You found the right information in the passage and you got it. This is showing kind of how cars is a little bit different though because in cars Mm -hmm. that's all you got to do is only look at the passage in in the science sections and the science passages like bio biochemistry we have to marry the two we have to marry our outside knowledge from studying you know the biochemistry the biology and we have to put that together with the the understanding of the passage
0: so what's the answer here?
1: <laughs> a. Oh, so sorry. Yes, yeah. It's a choice A, it.
0: gene so silencing. Gene
1: silencing, because like I said, once we deacetylate that histone, once we make it go from neutrally charged to positively charged, it causes the histone and the DNA to get stuck together. That silences the DNA, the genes and the DNA, because that removes any space around the DNA to let the, the transcription machinery come in and, you know, do its transcription.
0: Got it. Yeah. That's hard. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And that is a tough one. It, it, it's going to require some studying for sure. But, you know, if you were a student of mine, I'd be like, okay, cool. What I noticed from there is that you did a really good job with the reading of the passage and comprehension of the passage. And it was just a little bit more of that, you know, outside content knowledge. Yeah. Cool. Throw that in a flashcard. Study it a few times. Go watch a you know a video on it. There's plenty of information online. Make mm-hmm. sure that you feel good about it the next time you see a question about histones you're going to know yeah got
0: all it right. all right question 2
1: question 2 monocytes in conjunction with epithelium derived factors can act to facilitate which biological process and our four answer options are a fatty acid oxidation b transfection c lipid synthesis and d host immune response all right there's kind of one key word or phrase in the question stem here. That's, it's a monocyte. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key to understanding this question. What is a, what is a monocyte? Is kind
0: of, <laughs> Oh, uh, they're, they're white blood cells, a typo. They're white blood cells. Yeah. So yeah. white blood cells is immune stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's yeah, what I would go. That, that's
1: it. That's <laughs> it. That, that is it. This actually has, very little to do with the passage you don't actually don't need you could have just had this question without the passage and still known the right answer this is one that we kind of call a a pseudo discrete question because it's like it's part of the passage but like it acts exactly like a discrete question because you can answer it without the passage yeah awesome cool
0: all right that's right all right question three after injury induced cataract formation has begun which of the following are least likely to be found in nearby monocytes? So again, least likely. A, TGF-beta transporters, B, TGF-beta receptors, C, tight junctions, or C, cytokines. Um, so if we go back up to super dense what's going on in this uh, world um, during the process of this Um, epithelial mesenchymal transition um, so where this injury comes from we have lots of stuff going on Um, so we have monocytes um, which are doing TGF beta stuff Um, transporters, receptors okay cytokines we know going on some bad stuff cytokines um tight junctions are this weird like which one of these are not like the other (laughs) like there's uh like stuff going on and then tight junctions to me is like healthy cells they're sticking together oh wait these are not healthy cells they're injured and pissed off and leaky and all kinds of stuff so i'm just gonna see like ignoring everything else
1: I mean, that's not a bad try. If you you have that, you know, which one of these is not like the others, because this is, you know, a multiple choice test, three of the answers have to be wrong, one of them has to be right. If you notice three of them are very similar to each other, that can be a good hint. I'm not going to say that's an automatic, it's always right, the one that's different than the others, but in the absence of like a better idea or better guess, that's not a bad rule of thumb there. Uh, Brian, you're right. That is a good way to do it. Another thing that we can think of here is... You mentioned correctly that monocytes are white blood cells. So white blood cells are important for immune system. Are white blood cells, are they stuck in one place? Or are they moving around? How do they kind of act?
0: Uh, how do white blood cells act? Yeah. I don't know. They, they go to a source of injury, infection, whatever, and, yeah. and clump up and make pus.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're zipping around the circulatory system around yeah. our blood until and the lymph system and different stuff like that. Right, they're moving around though, until they find some area to help, um, you know, deal with infection. So, if we're talking about just normal monocytes, right, these white blood cells. They're probably unlikely to have tight junctions because tight junctions make them anchored down in place so they can't move and they're stuck. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of the function of the monocytes, which we need to be able to move around, mm-hmm. and go to different places to go and find that infection and, and ward off any invading bacteria or viruses. So that's another reason why seed is the the least likely thing, therefore the right answer.
0: Yeah. Could you read into this? I, I get super nitpicky with these types of questions. Um Tight junctions, are tight junctions really found in cells or on the surface of cells? So it's like,
1: ah, could, could like I don't know. I mean, that's a good point. Uh, they're a, a part of the tight junctions going to be in a cell because, you know, it has to have some anchoring point inside the cell. And then it allows them to have, um, you know, the anchor point from one to another. Is it in the cell? Eh, ish. But yeah. it's certainly a better answer, right? Again, going back to this, it doesn't have to be a perfect answer as long as it's significantly better than each of the other answers, which tight junctions is significantly better than these other answers since they are all explicitly mentioned as being involved with the monocyte's action in this cataract generation.
0: Yeah. Got it. Okay. Perfect. Whew. All right. So, what? Two, Two for three so far?
1: Yes, yes, two for three. And we're going on to question four here. Tell us, the structure of lysine is shown below. And we see a structure of lysine up here, a little (laughs) little diagram of lysine. And then the question is just, this molecule is best described as A, aromatic, B, polar and basic, C, nonpolar and not aromatic, D, hydrophobic.
0: So this is the time to plug uh blueprint m or no sorry uh, mcatflashcards.com so you can get access to sixteen hundred flashcards so you know all of your amino acids inside and out.
1: <laughs> yeah, knowing the amino acids, very important. Although I will I will quibble here a little bit. It is incredibly important to know your amino acids. You should. That is a worthwhile part of your time. That's one of the most like highest yield guaranteed things you're gonna get questions about. Yep. We actually can answer this one with only foundational knowledge of general and organic chemistry with no knowledge of the amino acids that uh, show us the no structure
0: yeah so aromatic to me equals ring mm-hmm.
1: that is that is one of the criteria
0: yes. yeah so to me it's not aromatic cuz there's no ring there at least that <laughs> that i can see in this diagram maybe there's yeah. some funky thing i can't see um so i'm going to get rid of answer choice uh, a um Hydrophobic, I forget um, what structures make something hydrophobic. I, I forget if alcohol is hydrophobic or not because there's there's an OH on there, right uh, or NH2. I don't I don't know. Aren't the longer chain ones more hydrophobic? Mm-hmm. Or yes. no. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So Long this is. Ha-
1: chains, ones are hydrophobic.
0: Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is not short. I mean, it's got a little bit of a chain there. So maybe it's hydrophobic. I don't know. But a uh, random piece of knowledge that's stuck in my head. So I'm like, go, oh, okay, maybe it's hydrophobic. So really, I'm stuck with B or C with my current line of thinking uh, polar and basic or non polar and not aromatic. Well, we know it's not aromatic because we already got rid of answer choice A. There's no ring there. And so C is tempting, but it could be polar and basic and it doesn't mention anything about aromatic. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know. I don't know.
1: This is an interesting one. So let's, let's go for it because I see two opposites right B and C is saying one saying polar, one saying nonpolar. Yep. so polar molecule is one where you have a lot of electrons in one part of the molecule. And not a lot of electrons in other parts. So there's a difference in that um, electron distribution. So, are there some atoms that get a lot of electrons, some that get very few? Versus nonpolar, they're very evenly spread out.
0: Okay.
1: What do you think, Brian? Even if you're just going to either you're, you're confident or or just to guess.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, to me, when you say that, well, I, I see. Two O's and an N on one side and only one N on another. And so that's not evenly distributed.
1: I agree. It's not evenly distributed, which means that it's true that it's polar. Therefore, we can definitely rule out C nonpolar. Okay. Yeah. And And so answer choice B? Answer choice B is correct. Okay. And um, this is, so therefore, D is also incorrect. That's one we didn't like really rule out earlier. We kind of hesitated on Yeah. This is not so hydrophobic, just means it doesn't like water. Yeah, you're right that hydrophobic things have really long chains, but it has to be a really certain type of chain. It has to be a chain that's made up of carbons and hydrogens. Since carbon and hydrogen are very non polar, lots of times non polar and hydrophobic are kind of synonyms for each mm. other. This thing has a lot of polar groups which are not hydrophobic, which is why this is um, ends up being answer choice B is correct, it's polar. It's basic because that um, those amine groups, those NH2s, when you put it in water, those take up an extra hydrogen and they have a positive charge, which makes them basic. Okay. So you can reason through it that way, or if you'd been, you know, putting in work on your amino acid flashcards, this would probably take you like three or four seconds. So different ways, different ways to answer it.
0: All right. Question five, given the findings in the passage, which additional result most strongly indicates that the TGF beta receptor 1, is that what the R stands for, Um, or TGF beta receptor 2 receptors uh, regulates TGF beta dependent epithelial proliferation? Wow. Um, So... Which additional result? So they're going to give us the answers. Are going to be additional results to the findings? Indicate that these TGAF beta BR1 and BR2 receptors regulate TGF dependent epithelial proliferation. Okay, I'm already lost in the question. Uh, answer choice A: Treatment with uh, TGF BR1 receptor agonist resulted in reduced M1. Uh, MIB1 detection. Expression of TGFBR1 and TGFBR2 was observed to increase during intervals of heightened epithelial cell proliferation. Answer choice C genes for several res- different receptor subtypes were found in untreated epithelium. Or D, treatment with the new TGF-BR3 receptor antagonist decreased the number of MIB1-positive cells. Yeah. Wow. And I look at my clock, and it says I'm running out of time, and I just pick one and move on.
1: <laughs> well, in, in a great scheme of things, not a bad strategy. If, if you look at a question and you recognize that this is one that's going to be a time sink, and even after a time sink, it's going to be somewhat of a guess, it's good to hedge your bets, right? You don't want to sink in five, six minutes on one question that you're maybe going to get right. Maybe you're going to get wrong. That's going to take away from easier questions later on. That being said, ideally, we answer every question with with some level of confidence here. So one thing that I really, really liked that you did with our cars questions, Ryan, is that you rephrased them. I think rephrasing this question And kind of trying to think of what it's really asking for will be helpful and giving us a starting point here
0: be my guest
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so let's 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 kind of dissect this a little bit so it's asking us which additional result. so you know they're going to provide a result for us as the answer choice what result would most strongly indicate that these two receptors tgfbr1 tgfbr2 Regulate TGF-beta-dependent epithelial proliferation. Okay, so if there was a result that's supporting something, that's strongly indicating something, we would probably want it to say, when I change the receptors, when the receptors are there, the proliferation happens. When the receptors are gone, no proliferation happens, right? That would show me that it's dependent on it, that this is, uh, it's regulating it because with them there it's happening within the gone it's not happening that seems like a pretty strong you know relationship there cause relationship my guess is that something like that would be really good evidence here so i made a prediction based on that rephrase about what type of answer choice i might be looking for right any of those kind of match that prediction from what we see i have no idea
0: this one scares me (laughs)
1: Okay, so with this one right, we just went through the those very complicated answer choices here. So A, A is just saying when we treatment with TGF Br1 receptor agonist resulted in MIB1 detection. Okay. We actually never mention the agonist, the receptor agonist in the question stem, and this never makes any mention of the receptors or proliferation. So A is just kind of like ruled out because it's not even answering the right question. It's telling us some result that wouldn't support or contradict this this kind of description because it doesn't even have the right actors right it's got the wrong it's got the wrong suspects so to speak so a is wrong just because it's mentioning the wrong things it's not even talking about tgfbr one tgfbr two and this proliferation but eliminate a for that reason b at first look, right, just in a second, I'm looking, oh, it has the right stuff. It's got TGFBR1 and TGFBR2, and it's got proliferation. We'll notice using actually that just that lens, B is the only one that even attempts to answer the question by using the right, like three pieces of information. So the three <laughs> things they tell us are tgfbr one R1, TGFBR2, and proliferation. It's asking us what evidence do we need to say those three things interact. We probably want something that's making some type of comparison between the three of them. And B's the only one that actually does that for us.
0: This is why I hate the MCAT.
1: It's tricky, right? They they will make the question so intimidating sounding. And then it'll be, you know, some simple, relatively straightforward reason like this, where you can just say, oh, only one of them even like pertains to the question. And therefore, I get the B of them.
0: So. It's like it's like the question is like, what what colors would you observe if you mixed uh, red and blue? <laughs> it's like answer choice A, B, and C are just three randomly just weird names, and you're like, it's got to be one of those. And the answer choice D is like, it's going to be a mix of red and blue. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's the only one that has both of are. them. Oh my gosh, it's so frustrating.
1: It it can be it can be frustrating, <laughs> but again. I like to think about this from the perspective of this is just practice, right? Whether this is your diagnostic test, whether you're just doing a practice exam, whether you're just doing your daily practice questions, whatever it is, it doesn't matter on any given day, you know, whether you get three out of five, four out of five, five out of five, whatever on that practice passage, what matters is that you're learning from any mistakes you make. So that way, you know tomorrow and the next day and the next day all the way up to test day, you're making progress to the point where you're doing the best you can. On day. These are just tools to improve, so yeah maybe we miss a question, but hopefully we learn something there
0: uh, we missed more than one question this time um, eh, so-, <laughs> so again, so um. We finished off cars strong last few weeks, feeling confident at the end of the passage. This passage, I feel beaten down. Uh, I have peanut butter and jelly sitting in my belly because this is my first passage post-lunch. I feel deflated in terms of my knowledge and my ability to do well on this. I'm ready to go. I'm hitting void. I'm going to avoid this. I'm not even going to do it. (laughs) Like, What do you tell a student right now?
1: That's a, that's, that's a big instinct. I feel like for a lot of people is I we call it catastrophizing. That's like, uh, or the other term that I really like, it's chicken littling, right? It's like, Oh, <laughs> one thing happens. The sky is falling. You're running around. Right. That is, I know it's, it's, it's easy for me to say this as someone who is looking back on this and has already done it. I, I can sympathize though, understanding that feeling that feeling very frustrated and disappointed when things don't go perfect or when you see a really difficult passage, a really difficult question. Ultimately, that's okay. But for real test day, right, you want to get the best score possible, obviously. And and chicken littling, catastrophizing is not going to get us there. The way that we avoid these things is by putting ourselves in that position, right? Making it so that we are used to doing this practice and very comfortable doing this. So that way, right, if you go before testing, do 10 practice tests before test day, I guarantee you will have come across passages in the past that are just as difficult, if not more difficult than this one. Mm -hmm. And every time you do that, every time you see a passage like that, when you're practicing not on test day but before then, you want to practice that skill of not chicken littling, of not catastrophizing and making sure that you make sure you stay focused and you mess up on your first full length practice test and you say, hey, you know what? I did chicken little this time. Second test, try to make it a little better. Third test, fourth test, etc. Just like any other skill that you're trying to develop across, just practicing it and trying to get incrementally better before test day is the best way to avoid some you know bad outcome.
0: All right, there you have it. It's BioBioCam Passage One from the Blueprint MCAT diagnostic exam, the half-length diagnostic that you get for free. Free, free, free. Go to blueprintmcat.com. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT podcast.